first be joined by Adam Tala of Amwal Networks, but we'll kick things off with Adam. How are you doing today, man? I'm good, Q. How are you? You put me before Dr. Jeff Ross. That's a tough spot for me. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you live up to the hype, man. Um, It was a pleasure getting to meet you, even for a brief moment at the conference. Um, Let's start there. What was sort of your experience like being in Miami? It was uh, my first time in Miami and my first time at the Bitcoin conference. I've heard so much about it, but I never really covered it from the perspective of a uh, press uh, perspective. And that was fascinating because I got to talk to the Bitcoin celebrities like like Dr. Jeff Ross, uh, Max Kaiser, and a lot of other people. And uh, it gave me a different view, really. There's the, uh, I I don't want to call this social media view or perspective, but, and there's also the industry, which is so fascinating. And now I understand why Bitcoin Magazine focuses on that industry and highlighting for startups, specific, specifically for startups, highlighting their products and showcasing their products. And it was fascinating. The stuff I learned there, just, I can't learn them anywhere else online or even any meetings or whatever. You have to be there at the Bitcoin conference. If you haven't been to 22, be there at 23. You will gain so much insight. I learned so much about, for example, the upcoming business and IPOs and everything that comes with mining. And also learned a lot about Lightning Network, the Lightning Network and the products that are going on right now and everything. It's just amazing, really. So Love that. I did not tell Adam to tell you guys to attend Bitcoin <laughs> 23. So that is just pure, authentic marketing uh, from him. But if you were not able to attend... Bitcoin 22, all of the footage is available on our YouTube channel, Bitcoin 22. Adam, I'm going to punt a question over to you, yep. but uh, talk to us a little bit about how, A, you started Amwal Networks, but before that, how you first came to discover or learn about Bitcoin. So Amwal Network, Amwal means money in Arabic. So it's an, it, the body of knowledge of uh, Bitcoin in general, Bitcoin uh, code, Bitcoin as uh, for investment, Bitcoin technology, everything Bitcoin. Uh, the protocol itself, everything is mainly in English. And that is, it's good and, and bad when it comes to uh, reaching the masses in the world. You know, there are so many people who want to learn about Bitcoin, who want to experience Bitcoin, want to use Bitcoin and so on. But, but as you know, in English, in English itself, there's a steep learning curve. So, so imagine from, you know, the perspective of a Russian speaker, Arabic speaker, uh, you know, any African language speaker, in all these languages, there are so hundreds of languages, thousands of languages around the world. So I took it on myself. I worked uh, in the past, I worked, uh, so my background, I was born in Iraq and I grew up in the United States in California mainly. So shout out to San Diego. And uh, I, I worked in the finance world, finance sector, and then I mainly worked also in this department. That's why I'm in DC right now. And when COVID hit, I, I, I was in Bitcoin. I learned about it in 2013, 2014, dabbled a little bit. And if you remember, for those who remember the OGs, remember the faucets. And that's, uh, I can't, some people don't believe me when I tell them about faucets, you know, with the, the whole thing with Bitcoin faucets. So I experimented with that a little bit. There was Bit Instance or whatever you called it at the time. And then I sold mo- most of it, as have so many people. And I learned my lesson when, you know, after 2017 and 2018. And Amwal Network is trying to make that experience, the Bitcoin experience, reach the Arabic speaking world. There are over 300, about, I would say 350 million people 
as many as there are uh, citizens in the United States, uh, U US population. Um, there are 350 million Arabic citizens around the world. And I wanted to be part, I'm not the only one, but we wanted to be a, a we wanted to spearhead, for example, the Lightning Network. We are, uh, so as far as I know, and my team knows, we're the only Arabic channel that is talking about Lightning Network. We're building our nodes and doing so many things in that space. So that's how I came out. That's how I started the whole channel. And we were lucky. We were so fortunate in the beginning to uh, get accepted, uh, I mean, for uh, an interview request with Dr. Saikidin Amus. And then Michael Saylor said yes. We're the only uh, Arabic channel that uh, Mr. Saylor said yes to. And that was a huge privilege that really launched us. And uh, since then, we, we spoke for, with Natalie from Bitcoin Magazine. We spoke with so many amazing people. And uh, slowly, you know, gaining that traction and gaining some, uh, uh, we, we, our, our focus is really on, on educating people. And that's what we're doing. We're also doing some bit, uh, lightning, Bitcoin uh, Lightning Network uh, nodes and developing apps and doing as much as we could to spread the word. Where, where have you found a majority of your audience wanting to learn about Bitcoin? Is it just in general what Bitcoin is? Is it more related to like current events news or is it more related to like the business development side of it? Where do you spend a majority of your time in the Bitcoin space? That's a great question. So I want to remind everyone, including the, you know, the two of us, that we all have said no before we said yes to Bitcoin, all of us. We started with that. And I think uh, uh, David Weiss has said that before. We all said no before we said yes. And the first no is followed by, how do I make money off of this? So the most, uh, most people, understandably, uh, our viewers, listeners, and so on, are mostly interested in the investment and speculative side of it. And a few are getting into the tech of it, understanding how the protocol works, understanding its role in the future. But for now, most people are, are invested and interested in uh, making money off of it quickly because there are so many stories about people becoming millionaires and billionaires of a Bitcoin. And all these stories are missing the, um, the time element. People said, so-and-so, became a billionaire from Bitcoin or a millionaire or so-and-so made, you know, hundred million uh, off of Bitcoin. But rarely do we hear how much time it took for them to become millionaires off of Bitcoin. People think if you got in 2013, then you, you became an, a millionaire instantly. But in fact, it took what, about five, six years to become a millionaire from like a thousand dollars entered in 2013. So most of uh, uh, our segment of viewers and listeners to our program are mostly interested in investing and following the price action, understandably, and there's a learning curve. We said no at first, and then we, we were interested in making money. And afterwards, I believe this, the third step, which is crucial, is understanding how it works. And that is my passion, is, is understanding and relaying. I, I hate to use the word teaching because I'm also, myself, I'm also a student. And I learn as much as possible. So I'm relaying that information in Arabic, English as well, but mostly in Arabic. And that's, that's mainly what, what's going on. Have you found there are maybe certain regions that are more inclined to learn about Bitcoin? Just I want to broaden the scope because 
the Arabic language is spoken by so much of the world. Are there specific countries or regions that you're finding are more receptive to Bitcoin right now? Yes. So we have Bahrain, we have UAE, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. Oh my God, so many influencers and, and analysts and people interested in Kuwait because I believe there were some subsidies for mining, believe it or not, um, early on, like as of six years ago. And that's why it took off over there. And, and in general, and there's also, especially in North Africa as well, Morocco and Algeria, I've never seen such an amazing audience over there in that region, North Africa. We have Algeria and Morocco heavily invested in, in Bitcoin tech and in Bitcoin as, as a currency of exchange. There are so many reasons for that. First of all, we have the usual macro trends of inflation and unemployment and, all, and so on and so forth. But we also have, uh, there's a lot of tightening and governmental regulations on Bitcoin over there. And, and Bitcoin is already scarce. So making it even more scarce tends to backfire on the regulators. And we've seen that in China, we've seen that elsewhere, we've seen that. And that's, I, in my opinion, that's what's happening in Morocco and Algeria. There, there's this uh, regulation that makes a drive towards it. Kind of, uh, you know, whatever is forbidden, there is a market for it. And when that, and if, if when Bitcoin is forbidden, Bitcoin has a, a, a that, Amazing use, not just investment, but also tech and so many other things. And people along the way, with time, will find out the value of Bitcoin, not just scarcity, but, but also the technology, beating inflation and so many other things. I mean, it's, it just, it's, it's a rabbit hole. We always talk about the rabbit hole, like Michael Saylor could talk about it for hours and hours. It's fascinating, but it's just, it's the more you educate yourself on it. The, the more ready you are for using it. And people in the, in the, in the region, the Gulf region, and also in North Africa are, as they're holding it, uh, some of them are uh, unintentionally learning more about it. So that's, that's the good thing. That's, that's the great thing about it. Bitcoin is one of those things that takes time. You learn, even if you don't want to learn. When you say no in the beginning, it takes time. With time, you will learn. You will learn that it's tough to beat the market. It's tough to time the market. It's tough to be a person in a, in a rush to make a quick buck. It's tough to make uh, you know monthly income without educating yourself first. It takes time and you accumulate and you DCA, although it's boring, but that's what I'm um, trying to make people understand. That's, that's really the goal of it. And Adam, I'm curious because you brought up earlier how like a lot of your conversations right now are around the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. How much of the conversation just in the broader region has shifted from Bitcoin as a savings mechanism and a store of value to a medium of exchange or we can maybe buy certain goods or services with Bitcoin. Has that conversation started to transpire out there or is it still more focused on a store of value? I would, I would like to say yes, but I'll be honest, it's a no. It's still as a, Bitcoin is, is, a, is, a, is for savings mainly. Now, here's the thing. Let me just set the stage first. First of all, inflation, we talk about inflation in the United States, how it's affecting the dollar, how it's affecting prices, how it's, everything's going up, up, up. And, and we feel the pain here. But believe me, people overseas feel it even um, twofold, threefold sometimes. Because their economies, our economy is, is since 1971, since decoupling from uh, uh, the gold standard, we relied on you know, oil and, 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 and 
political power and military power and other things and, and uh, military, military uh, production became the engine of this economy. But in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, it's, uh, their, their currencies are not pegged to these things. Their currencies are pegged to the dollar. And the dollar, as I mentioned, is pegged to these other powers within the United States. So their currencies fluctuate and are volatile based on what the United States does or doesn't do. Whoever comes into power, who, whatever the interest rates on the um, two-year, 10-year, and 30-year, that these things affect, they don't affect me on a day-to-day -day basis. But in Lebanon and in, in, um, in Iraq and in, in Libya and Egypt, people get affected deeply because their savings are in dollars. There are some families and some people who have gold, but not a lot of gold. Gold is very centralized, just like it is here. So their savings are in dollars. In Lebanon, for example, in Iraq, in Iraq, if you, I, have, I know some people, if they want to buy something, they buy it with dollars, US dollars. Not, so so that's, that's one thing. So telling them about Bitcoin as an alternative to gold, like I mentioned earlier, takes uh, uh, time and, and a learning curve. Then afterwards, to convince them that it's, it could be a mode of, of uh, uh, everyday expenses, by uh, trading, transacting, all of that stuff. We need to explain the, uh, something I learned at Bitcoin 2022, it's, uh, which is that the Lightning Network allows you to trade in your local currency but send it over the Lightning Network. It gets converted. It, like if I send you a dollar or a dinar or a dirham or a real, for example, in Saudi Arabia, using an app, Strike or whatever apps, we're also working on our own app, that currency will get converted automatically to Bitcoin and get transferred to the recipient. And then just a nanosecond or instantly before it arrives, it will be switched back to whatever currency the receiver is receiving or deciding. And, and so with this method, Bitcoin becomes really the foundation, the technological foundation that Michael Saylor keeps talking about, which is a foundation that feeds, it's like it's, 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 it's the, the blood of the monetary system, the future one, to send value over the Lightning Network for people who don't understand it, even for people who don't care about Bitcoin. They're only using it to send money over the network. And that's, that's what I'm trying to hone in on in my show and tell people about. And it's, it's, we're starting, we're, we're getting there slowly to convince people that it's a mode of transferring value, transacting, everyday transacting. Even if you're scared of Bitcoin, even if you're scared of volatility, the main, and I'm sorry, I'm talking too much, but a lot of people say, what if I buy it now and buy something with it and then the value goes up or down? What am I gonna do? Well, on the Lightning Network, you don't have to care about that. On the Lightning Network, you pick, if you choose as the sender or the receiver, if you pick to use the local currency, you're only converting on the Lightning Network, then there is no fear of volatility because it's instant. That's the beauty of the Lightning Network. And uh, one last point I will say is, is all of this Bitcoin is doing without a single marketing team. Now, there are some competitors and I, the C word crypto, I, and I, I just, I, I don't know what to say. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, like, you know, uh, altcoins out there, XRP and other thing, who claim to solve that problem, but these coins, these altcoins use tons and tons and tons of marketing teams and marketing campaigns to convince people of that, while Bitcoin doesn't have any marketing team. And it's already relaying that information to the world. And, and 
And there is, there is value in that, I believe. There is massive value. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I would highly recommend if you have not gotten a chance um, in English, unfortunately, we don't have it in Arabic, but maybe, uh, Adam, you can help us to get that over to Arabic. But Jack Mahler's announcement at Bitcoin 22 explains what Adam is explaining here about using the Lightning payment rail as a way to send dollars to dollars from a customer to a merchant. Um, and not only are you able to just interact much more quickly in money transferring as a result, but you also don't have to pay these middlemen like the banks, like your bank or the merchant's bank or the credit card processing fees. So all of that stuff goes away by using the Lightning Network. Um, but I want to, if you don't mind playing this like little back and forth sort of uh, definitely more speculative, but thought experiment, because a lot of the countries that you've listed and a lot of the countries that I think your show really speaks to are these oil wealthy nations that have not necessarily benefited from the US money printing, however, have become allies to a degree based on the resources that their countries have. We see this sort of push and pull. Just, just over two years ago, oil was trading at a negative value and today it's trading at record highs. We see a conversation around our energy usage on a global scale and a conversation around Bitcoin's energy usage as well. I'm curious about the conversations that you're having in regards to where does Bitcoin fit into the equation of the oil mining in particular, but just oil in general? That's, that's a great question. So oil is, is a real asset. It's a real commodity. US value, the dollar value, is a paper value. Now these countries, now the oil producing countries, OPEC and OPEC plus and, and other producing countries, they're slowly, well, they, they're understanding that oil, real commodity with real value and real use, it's, it's real, it's real stuff, it's a real stuff. And it, it's being exchanged for paper, paper value. And that's the US dollar. Now, sooner or later, Russia has discovered that and started implementing a method of saying, you know, I have real oil, I have real value, I have stuff, I have real stuff on my hand. Why should I take your paper in exchange for it? Your paper, you control it, you reach into my account and freeze it and seize it in some cases. Why should I give that to you? Now, the Gulf countries also know that. I'm definitely, they also know that. They are some of the smartest people in charge over there. And they know, they know that their stuff is real. They watch everything that's going on and they understand that. However, decoupling, they have diplomatic and political problems. So the best way to use that power, the oil producing power is mining, as you mentioned. Mining, so oil has this demand problem, production, demand on production. You can't overproduce because you have to forecast demand. The first lesson I learned, MBA, I, I have my MBA from Penn State and one of the, you know, last, all the demand values and equilibrium and all these things, we learned that oil has this major problem because to extract oil and get oil, you need to forecast and you need to understand, have uh, your finger on political and, and, and macro trends and so many other things. Mining solves that. So this fluctuation in demand and this change in demand, like we saw with COVID, destroyed demand. We saw oil. We saw we saw oil go below zero. You were getting paid to take oil. 
that was crazy. That, that that's insane, and and that's because we don't understand the demand value of this. So, mining as a as a um, a process, a mining process that you know all these miners produce so much, uh, and they need so much energy. Oil can come in and solve that problem for its demand problem. It could give these miners the energy they need, and miners have the power, no pun intended, to turn off or reduce their mining power. If their cities or their countries are under stress of energy use, they could turn it off or turn it down or reduce it. But as a, as a one line, as, as a streamlined um, uh, demand, they could give it to mining. So if they start mining, like we saw in se several cities in, in the United States, like uh, I believe in Tennessee and other places, Austin as well, Texas mainly, there's a lot of, because it's a, uh, a trickle up economy, because you could start at the little towns, little zip codes, you could start mining and producing a trickle up wealth uh, using mining, that could be done in the Middle East. It's not just the Gulf countries, there's also Libya, there's also Iraq and other places. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a commodity rich uh, region and mining is their be best way to create wealth way below all the way up upwards to uh, feed the economy and also to solve that demand problem that you know we always have to forecast demand with mining you don't need to forecast demand because whatever excess you have could be used for generating bitcoin and wealth so that's what's uh, that's what i'm trying to relay and i've been communicating with a few figures in the middle east trying to um, lobby them to uh, to start implementing at least a few steps towards that goal but again it, it's a it's a process of convincing especially with so much money and so much power and so much um on the line it takes it takes uh time but we're getting there that's that's what i want to say that we're getting there so i want to really get to the bottom of this because like i i don't necessarily agree with this idea that these oil rich companies who benefit from us on the global scale being reliant on oil as our main source of energy are going to usher, help usher in this new form of technology that essentially more clearly defines the value of your energy. Like where or how do we go from convincing the citizens who want to use it to the powers that be who are benefiting from allowing oil to essentially continue to be at the focal point of all sources of energy? Like, we're seeing the shift slowly happen here in America. You have ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil now introducing oil flaring to mine Bitcoin while they're mining natural gas. Are those conversations that you're hearing or seeing out in the Middle East? So the Middle East sees and hears the virtue signaling from a lot of U.S. institutions and and politicians about energy use and about oil use and everything. We've seen even the president talk about introducing renewable energy uh, in, the, in the US military and um, there's a push for EVs and other things. But again, that's, I believe is virtue signaling because mainly two reasons. So, so if we look at the number of cars in the world, gas consuming cars, I believe there's um, a billion and a half, 1.5 billion would it be cars. While EVs in the world, I think there's 40, 45 million, the latest estimate I've seen is about 40, 45 million electric vehicles around the world. Electric vehicles use gas 
to, um, to turn gas, to turn energy into electric power. So, so there's a lot of virtual signaling, but, that's, but consumption is still very high and it takes decades and de decades to switch and transition from one energy source to another or from one energy use to another. But they understand, even if it takes decades, these countries, these oil producing countries understand that even if it takes decades, it's still a possibility, especially if nuclear power um, enters the equation. Now, the same people who, who are all for ESG and all for uh, you know, environmental, the same people who, virtues, who protest today's oil consumption are the same people who protested um, uh, the nuclear, the three islands, I believe, and, and, and uh, uh, Chernobyl and other, they're the same ones. So we couldn't do nuclear um, energy production here and we couldn't do now uh, a lot of the gas consumption, oil consumption um, methods. So what, what, what are we supposed to do? Coal, we go back to coal, that's impossible. We have to stay on gas and oil for the foreseeable future. Now, the, uh, the oil power from the oil co uh, producing companies uh, and uh, governments in the Middle East, yes, you are right. Convincing the average person, the average citizen to use Bitcoin is a, is, is a, difficult, is a difficult thing on its own. But convincing governments, it's not as um, it's not as far-fetched as you might think. So uh, the governments over there rely on a lot of young minds. There's a lot of young people in the Gulf governments. Believe me, there are so many young people, and they're very in tune with tech, and they're in tune with the uh, ramifications of uh, that, that ESG vir virtual signaling. And so many other things that are going on in Europe and the Middle East, they see what's going on with Russia. They see the reliance of Germany, for example, on, on, on Russian gas and, and the push to find nuclear sources and all, all that stuff. So there is the fear is not of electric power. The fear is from, of course, nuclear. And they see all of that. So they will they already do understand that Bitcoin could solve that pro problem and especially mining. We've seen some reports of, for example, Aramco, the biggest company in the world, the Saudi Aramco talking about bit, uh, not Bitcoin mining, specifically mining. So there are hints, and in Arabic we say there is no uh, smoke without fire because and these hints and these signals mean there are some things. There are there are things that are going on in boardrooms. There are at least talks and negotiations and discussions on that matter on using mining to uh, consume whatever excess uh, production we have. But is that not just virtue signaling to just have a conversation about Bitcoin mining and say we're thinking about it? Is that not just a virtue signal to those of us who are passionate about this technology? Meanwhile, you have this cartel that dictates the price of oil around the world who has nothing to benefit or gain from adoption of Bitcoin and only gains from us continuing to use their oil and gas. So again, I present the question of what actual benefit do these governments have in adopting Bitcoin if their real value add to society is oil and that is how they have been granted this place on the world stage? The only benefit, the only benefit they would have really is protection, protection from the US dollars the DXY, the US dollar's loss of its value and purchasing power. And we've seen Japan, for example, is divesting. They, they sold what, according to Bloomberg, about 60 billion. So the only benefit they may have is protection from the dollar's demise. Another thing, I, the only other thing, the only other thing I, I could think of 
is leading because you don't want to be the uh, you know the last to the punch bowl. You want to be the first. You want to be in the first batch of adopters. That's the only benefit I could think of. You're right. There is no benefit for them now to abandon that. Um, everything I'm talking about is not going to happen in months. It, it's going to take years, maybe decades down the road. Same thing with every transition from one power source to another. Everything. We've seen when cars were, were in the late 1800s, when cars were talked about, people fought tooth and nail for uh, horses. So it, it, takes, it takes time. It, takes, it's, uh, it must be understood that these governments will never abandon the dollar easily. The U.S., there's no way because their power also, by extension, is based on U.S. power. Of course, and they price, they price oil. They, they make the, we talk about petrodollar and petrodollars are uh, propped up by oil. So it's, it's a system that supports it's, itself, but it takes time. And then the only thing I could think of is, is the weakness of the U.S. dollar and also being first. You don't want to be last. You don't want to be, because we saw people started fighting over Bitcoin uh, as eight years ago, and companies started fighting over Bitcoin in 2020 until now. And next, it will be governments that fight over Bitcoin. And we will see that in the next few years. And, and like, first, I understand your question, and I understand the frustration of these countries and companies feeding the power of the dollar. There is no benefit for them in adopting Bitcoin, especially that Bitcoin is not owned by someone and not owned by something or an entity. The only benefit is the weakness, avoiding the weakness of the US dollar and also being first in line to this power. That's the only power they, they might want to get to. We will see. We yeah, will see. I hope so. There I, is, I want to get a sense more of yeah. what's going on or the conversations you're having with actual citizens of these, this different, uh, these different parts of the Middle East. Um, what are some of the priorities or conversations that you're having with people where they're saying, this is a reason why I turned to Bitcoin? So the reason is they turn, before I, I talk about that, there's a trend that I've noticed in several countries, especially in the Gulf. So the young people are very, very techie. They're tech savvy. They like uh, learning new technology and, and, and investing in new technologies in US stocks and Bitcoin, and other things, and a lot of altcoins. However, the the the, the money holders and, and real money in, in the Gulf uh, countries is in the hands of, um, I hate to say this, but people of older age, just like here in, in America. And there's skepticism with, with, these, with that older um, generation of investing in, in uh, Bitcoin or anything crypto. Uh, you know, just like Warren Buffett is the Warren Buffett uh, way, way of thought. It's not real, it has no use, has no utility. However, Money starts transitioning, changing hands inevitably to that younger generation. They cannot wait to sink their teeth into Bitcoin and other cryptos. That's just a fact. Because they understand it. It's not just speculation. It's not for investment for, you know, and, and, and day trading and all that stuff. No, it's, 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 it's actual investment in technology, building apps, building technology, building companies and startups based on that technology and Lightning Network specifically. But it, again, it takes time. Is there do older do older generations over there believe in Bitcoin? Not at all. They all think just like Warren Buffett, and that's understandable. My mom thinks the same way. She believes it's not real, but that's that's how it is. That's that's just how it is. And when we're older, I don't know, Q, you look like you're 65. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. When we when we 
when we are older, you know, in a few decades, we, we will look at a new technology that the new generation may, may or may not have. And we will look at it with some skepticism. And that's- I mean, I'll, I'll simplify that for you. Our generation was on MySpace and Facebook. And right now, yeah, right? Yep. if you bring up either of those to any of these high school kids, they'll film a TikTok of you actually talking about ancient technology. So like <laughs> technology changes very quickly. I don't doubt that. Um, I had the, the high thought the other day of, look, either time travel just never is going to happen because otherwise I would have gone back to 2010 and been like, you'll buy Bitcoin to right. myself or Bitcoin is not actually the end all be all that we think it is, but conversation <laughs> for another time. The main, um, sorry, if I cut you, uh, sorry, cut you off. I have one thing to add to the thing is the, the main problem I've been seeing uh, by talking to people in the Middle East, and I, I plan a few trips to a few countries over there very soon. The main problem I have is most of them just follow the, the price action in USD. And I always tell them, forget about the price action. You're in it for the long haul. Forget about, uh, you know, drop from 39 to 38. Who cares? Just hold on and wait for it. Because we look at Bitcoin on a yearly basis. It's the best performing asset in the last five and also the 10 years. It beat everything else. So watch that and just treat it like, like a savings account. Stop looking at your phone every five minutes. Stop looking at your phone every, uh, every day. And another thing is U.S. companies. Hey, U.S. companies, what are you doing? Like the Middle East is such a great and fertile market for crypto right now and, and, and mainly Bitcoin. We have... Binance, for example, taking over the market over there. And they're, I'm sorry to say this, I know this is live, but they're taking over the market. They're, they're making great relationships and they're building business partnerships. And what are US companies doing? Nothing, most of them. Look at Coinbase and look at uh, Kraken just recently um, got a license in, in Abu Dhabi, which is great. And I think Kraken's mind is in the right place. And I, I, I wish that more American companies would do the same because it's such an amazing market, very overlooked and has high liquidity. That market over there, especially the younger generation, it's, it's over 50% of, of, of people, the population of their demographics are uh, between the ages of 15 and uh, 39, I believe, 29, 39. And Binance is just going in and you know, taking over this market. And I, I wish we would be engaged more. First, I just want to shout out. I know that we have a lot of people watching on YouTube. The next carrot and drop where we will give away free sat will be when we get up to a hundred likes. So smash that like button. If you're not subscribed to the channel, make sure you subscribe as well. But we will be giving out more free sats, uh, hopefully very soon for you guys. Uh, Adam, I want to maybe dissect something there because like, look, I. I'm the son of Iranian immigrants. I know how it goes where mm -hmm. Middle East, all of a sudden there's like this stigma, especially stateside. How much of that stigma do you think is being applied to this idea of developing out business ventures in that region of the world? Huge. I mean, oh man. So uh, in Iran, I, I know there are many people who either mine or use Bitcoin and invest in Bitcoin. I know that. And 
it's it's a solace for many people. It's it's a, it's a it's a rope for many people to buy and 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 do services online and everything. But the skepticism of U.S. companies in doing any business over there, some of it is well founded, and some of it is um, you know where the uh, uh, environment in the United States is is that is a product of over a decade post 9-11 uh, culture and, and so many other things and, and many stigmas over there and, and things. And there's also the risk factor. There's a, a risk of doing business in a, in a region that uh, 2003 uh, uh, war in Iraq, and then we had the Arab Spring, uh, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and, and several other countries. So there's that risk factor. And then the law, you cannot have good business relationships. So to, I'm not, we're not talking about building a whole, you know, Target or Walmart over there. We're talking about, there are very, very amazing startups over there that are ready to showcase their, uh, not, not through a mall network, no. Like they could show, showcase their products to many US companies who are interested in these things because it's true that it's stigmatized. There's a lot of problems. You cannot do business in Iran. You cannot do business, for example, in, a lot, in Iraq as well. So there's no infrastructure for business. But that's what Bitcoin solves. You could, we, we saw what, uh, I forgot her name, the Afghan entrepreneur, uh, Mahbub, her, her last name is Mahbub. Fascinating story. Uh, I heard to Natalie Brunel's uh, episode on her. She's fascinating. She started in 2013, 2014, paying her employees in Bitcoin. You can do that. Michael Saylor and Saifuddin almost also talked about it, how you could pay your, it's, it's, a, it's a great economy where you could pay in Bitcoin. So businesses who want to start or venture into the Middle East, they could pay in Bitcoin. Many people would take it. Many people take it. And, and that's one way of starting a business or building a business or investing in a startup over there is pay them in Bitcoin. And it worked. It worked with... Uh, with the Ms. Mahbub and worked with a lot of other uh, ventures. Uh, as for the stigma, it exists. Some of it is well-founded, as I mentioned. There's a lot of risk, but there's a way out and there's a way to do business it's through Bitcoin. Venture into Bitcoin, pay in Bitcoin. It's a great economy. I'm curious also though, if you think that there could be an opportunity for those up and coming bright minds in this region to just sort of take the mantle away from the West and say, you know what? I understand this technology is important. I want to see this technology benefit. Let's build it out for our use cases. Culturally speaking, the way like my family in Iran interacts with money is very different than the way my family here interacts with money. Like everyone, every Middle Easterner who grew up in America or moved to the West always remembers those times where you would go back home and you'd literally take a suitcase just full of everything here because they don't have those type of resources. What if we could essentially recreate that in the inverse and give the playbook to these kids to in turn build out the resources that they're going to take to the rest of the world? Like, is that not something that's being done? Like, what does Bitcoin technology look like in that part of the world that maybe is different from what we have in the West? I, I'm a realist. And ideally, ideally, what you said would happen is build a great product. There's no need for the United States or Europe. Nobody appointed the United States or Europe as, you know, the overseers of uh, a new tech. Nobody. It's just, ideally, that's what would happen is make 
businesses and startups that grow up, go, grow over there and have a great product to flourish and succeed. The problem, however, is due to so many infrastructural and organizational and also capital reasons, uh, the US money, uh, I'm talking companies and businesses have the capital to grow and nurture businesses. What, what, what do I mean by that? Mark Zuckerberg was not the first to think of Facebook. He was not the first. I, believe me, believe me when I say the odds of someone else having a better idea, better product of a different version of Facebook, I'm sure existed in Africa and India and other places in the world. But it's Mark's connections, the launchpad, Harvard, and so much money and so, so many investors and proximity to, so and moving to Silicon Valley. You see, it's, it's that nurturing, what do we call it, incubating of a startup that makes it a reality. Ideally, we wouldn't need that. That's what we need. And that's what I'm talking about. Now, money-wise and capital, there is a lot of money and capital in the Middle East, of course, to nurture and build and accelerate these businesses. However, we need, it's a worldwide system. We need Chinese investors. We need U.S. investors, European investors in some cases. And, and when I say U.S. companies going over there, it's not to help pull up startups and make them what they are. No, it's maybe you will find an Iranian developer or an Iraqi developer or a Libyan developer has a great idea and that US business would benefit in investing in their ideas. And it would stay completely Iranian or Iraqi or Libyan. It doesn't need to be Americanized at all, not at all. There are some, like for example, Amal Network, we are not looking for anything. We're not looking to, for, for a flag. We're not Americanizing, we're not Arabizing, we're not trying to supplying or anything. We are, just like Bitcoin, a global reaching company. That's what we hope to be. And when I said U.S. company companies, that's maybe it was, um, I needed to phrase that better. I just meant capital and having a good launch pad for uh, businesses and ideas. I mean, look, if you ask the Winklevoss twins who invented <laughs> Facebook, I think you're going to get a very different answer than the one you gave us. Right? <laughs> <laughs> don't you think, don't you think Mark's, uh, you know, hate to, to uh, Bitcoin is because of the, Winklevoss brothers, you know, getting Bitcoin. We don't want to speculate, but it's, it's interesting. Oh, you mean like the fact that they use their the payout from Facebook to go buy Bitcoin, and, and then that's, maybe that's why he hates Bitcoin. I mean, he refused to get into Bitcoin like, to this day. I think I'm just uh, spreading. Does Zuckerberg to really? <laughs> I mean, he tried to create Libra, right? Libra and DM. Yeah, I don't. I think he has two sheep named uh, Bitcoin and Maxi, though, as their names. I'll, I'll look into it real quick. <laughs> I mean, look, I, look, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg does not have any Bitcoin, especially because Chamath Palihapitiya was in charge of growth at Facebook in like 2012 through 2014. And that was a period where he was heavily buying Bitcoin as well. So I'm hard pressed to believe that like in the tech capital of the world with one of the most iconic tech companies that he doesn't own some sort of Bitcoin or have some exposure. Um, but to your point earlier, like, yeah, he absolutely explored shitcoinery like during the ICO craze and pandemic, if you will. Um, I think Michael Saylor said it best on Lex Friedman's show where you have what is arguably the best technology ever created by man. And to then take away any human creativity, time, 
and energy from further developing out and building off of this technology to then instead go and create competitors that are essentially just copying the base code and making it worse as a result. Like that is a far greater, I think, issue with our current industry than anything beyond what big tech could do or influence have, in my opinion. I agree. Um, but I'm They're curious. Like and, yeah. Go ahead. I'm, I'm curious what conversations or what place does the broader crypto market have in the Middle East or shit coins in general? So shit coins like um, XRP and, and others uh, go into- Anything that's not Bitcoin <laughs> is a shit coin. <laughs> that's, that's, that's correct. Is uh, they go and so, seize the hat, shitcoin minimalist. <laughs> so it's uh, these uh, shitcoins and 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 many companies and many um, uh, investors have marketing teams and they're ready to uh, spend millions. Uh, we've seen what happened with I forgot his name, uh, Justin Sun and TRX Tron and that whole uh, saga. Uh, they spent uh, tens and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on many marketing campaigns for their shit coins. We've seen a lot of Binance uh, projects. Binance didn't sponsor them necessarily, but they a lot of these shit coins grow um, on the BSC Binance Smart Chain, and they have marketing teams behind them to market and um, and, and target segments. Some, one of those segments that they, that they target is the Middle East. They target, of course. Um, Asia, some parts of Europe, the United States, Latin America, and uh, but a lot of targeting in the Middle East. Um, and, and most people around the world really look for the, um, the next Bitcoin, which is, is it's, it's never going to happen. It's never, it's, there, there is no next Bitcoin. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Uh, and people chase that, and that's what marketers exploit. And, and, and if you want, to, if you have, let's say a million dollars and you want to build a shitcoin, okay? A million dollars to build a shitcoin. You would use maybe a hundred thousand or less to build the actual shitcoin and, and eight, 900 to market it on social media and other places. There are some instances and it's just, you know, um, I can't confirm it right now, but you could buy telegram groups. You could buy um, thousands of posters and everything on, on Twitter and, also on Telegram to market these. Is Bitcoin, does Bitcoin have any marketing teams? No, zero. But these shitcoins do that. And what do we say? We say altcoins and other crypto was created to separate you from Bitcoin. And every dollar you put in anything other than Bitcoin is, is, is a dollar wasted. Now, yes, you could make money just like a casino. Like you could buy, $1,000 worth or $10,000 worth in Avalanche or Solana or Ethereum, which uh, are uh, good coins when it comes to price action, but you cannot invest in it for the long haul. You can't. Solana crashed, not, not the price, but the network was down for about seven hours yesterday. And that's what, the hundredth time in, in, in a month. And so you could make money, it's true, you could. Put $1,000, get $1,500, make 50% profit, day trade, swing trade, scalp trade, whatever you call it. But you cannot build a future from it. And there's so much headache and there's so much risk 
and so much time consumed to make some profit in these in these other coins. With Bitcoin, no, you don't. You just need to stack and forget about it and come back in five, 10 years or give it to your family, give it to your kids in the future. And this way you beat every other asset, including oil and gold in five, 10 years. How is that difficult? So that's my take on, on shit coins really. And that's what's going on is the marketing behind them that is really selling them. It's not their, their, their value at all. It's, it's the marketing. How many of your like viewers or audience reaches out to you essentially saying like, oh, but what about this coin? Because you're right. Like all they're doing is marketing it. They get some big celebrity that they gift all of the pre-mined coins. And then there you go. All of a sudden, like this coin is now in, in the zeitgeist. And there's like, I, I was having this conversation with someone over the weekend where it was like, you can genuinely look at a historic price chart for every single altcoin. And the moment it gets listed on Coinbase, it goes from, oh, we're moving up and then get listed on Coinbase, sell off, sell off, sell off. ICP. <laughs> well, here's my favorite one. Then you go look at the Coinbase stock chart. Oh, and then you see the fact that it's all time high was the day it IPO'd and it has never one time since come close to that value, let alone continuing to trend down and to the right. right. So I'm curious, like how, like how much of your audience is asking for that content versus how many of them are getting like confused by the advertising and marketing around it? What I saw, and not all of them, of course, but the majority, I would say, I would say uh, 70, 80% would hear, will take the thread of information from Telegram or Facebook or somewhere else where these marketers operate, and then would come ask me, for example, coin whatever, coin one, two, three. I don't wanna say an acronym of any letters because trust me, there is a, there's, a, there's an acronym for every, for every coin, coin, so an every shit coin. Uh, so they hear about it, for example, on Telegram, on some weird group, scam group, so-and-so coin. So they would come ask, not just me, but other people also on Twitter, what do you think of this coin? And I'm like, ah, so we're gonna hear soon about this shit coin because its marketing team is, is on fire. And it's true, that's what happens is, what do you think of this coin? And I used to ask, do you mean like it's tech? And, and, and the response is usually no, it's just if I put, you know, $100, $1,000, $10,000 in it, will it make me uh, good? profit like 20% in a week. I, I've had these questions for real in the past. And I say, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not gonna research it just because of that, because it takes time to research, especially with shit coins and then you find it out and some people just good. So that's where a lot of, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, bad faith influencers uh, uh, play a role because they feed on that instead of relaying information and, and, and telling people about tech, they just, um, they they take feedback from the questions and use it for their SEO and say, for example, coin so-and-so, shitcoin so-and-so is going to skyrocket to a million dollars and it's going to be the Ethereum killer or whatever. And then take Bitcoin's market cap. And uh, it's, it's a self-sustaining cycle, I would say. And uh, the best way to, to battle and co combat it is to educate on Bitcoin as much as possible. Only then we could equip people to uh, detect scams, detect bullshit, and understand how to answer their own questions, really. 
Adam, I want to give you an opportunity to, to touch a little bit on just sort of AMWAL, wait, AMWAL network. Did I say that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but before we do that, like, is there anything maybe recently that someone, uh, someone from your audience has asked you that maybe you'd want to have a conversation about regarding like what Bitcoin is or the technology around it, or maybe just a question that typically pops up that you'd like to address here? Yes, uh, the Lightning Network. So a lot of people are, are wondering about the Lightning Network. One of the smart questions that I appreciated from one of our viewers is um, the, and I know you, you guys know the answer to this one is why not uh, increase the block size? And um, like the block size was a, its own, um, what is it, one point something megs, and why not increase the size? And to understand this, the answer to this question is just understand the stakeholders of the network. We have the nodes, node operators, and we have also miners and users. And the block wars in, in, from 2015 to 2017, that was really the main reason for the block wars, where big money, just like Ethereum and other shitcoins, big money in Bitcoin, which is the exchanges, just like you mentioned, Coinbase and of course, Binance's and all those wanted to increase the block size to solve the uh, scalability problem. And, uh, and, and big investors wanted the same thing. But who said no? It was the nodes. The nodes said no, because to increase the block size, you need to increase expenses of hosting and, and running a node. People, a regular average Joe, a regular person with a very average salary and living in a, in a one bedroom apartment will not be able to purchase and run a node because of bandwidth, because of equipment, and because of other things, if the block size is big. And so what happens? The node will be operated by big money and people with, with resources and people with power. So it centralizes, it becomes a centralized coin. And, and, and thank God we didn't, you know, like thank God that didn't, the exchanges and, and big money did not win. And that's a prime example. The block wars are a prime example of why Bitcoin is so great and, and, and will always remain decentralized because the little guy had a say and had power in changing things. And that's why. So look at Ethereum. Ethereum, they passed the whatever you call it, the 1559, I think, without any say from the users or the. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. They changed that um, uh, the uh, economics, uh, really, the, the economics of the monetary policy of the whole chain by passing 1559 for burning their own token. And the little guy is paying the price and fees, high fees people don't understand in Ethereum are here to stay. They're, they're now a feature, not a bug in Ethereum. And, and that's what Bitcoin avoided. And that's why we don't increase the block size. That's why we needed a layer two. And that's the Lightning Network. That's the value of the Lightning Network. Adam, I'm curious, what are your feelings around the CTV uh, Bitcoin update that Jeremy Rubin has presented uh, just through the lens of the way this update is being pushed through? So I uh, saw a little of it and I read a bit about it, but I'm wholeheartedly against it because I don't think it serves the network. I think it's one another attempt to centralize and, you know, we have the loud voices talking about ridiculous things like, uh, uh, moving Bitcoin to uh, proof of stake, which is ridiculous, cartoonishly, cartoonishly ridiculous. But we have more insidious threats 
like this um, uh, something, I forgot what it's, it's, it's uh, the number for it. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's very, very uh, dangerous. I th I'm against it. Uh, I think it's it's not good for the, and I, I believe that the uh, developers and, you know, you know, have smart people like Andreas, who, uh, Antonin Paulus, and he, he really talked about it in, in, at length, more, way more knowledgeable than me. I'm nothing to him. And he explained it way more eloquently. Um, I don't want to butcher it by talking about it, but I'm against it. I really am. And I run my own nodes and that's why I'm against it. So that's fair. That's fair. I think that's why this discussion is happening or we're witnessing it uh, transpire in real time. I'm curious, what uh, what changes, if any, would you make to the Bitcoin just code right now? I, I asked this question to Michael Saylor and he got a little irked, I think, by the question, which is there is a um, Bitcoin is not user friendly. It's just not. Try explaining it to my grandma. <laughs> There's, a, you, you know, when you're, I'm sure you guys remember when you were in high school or college and in calculus or math class, the teacher starts writing something. You look away for a split second. You look away for a split second. And now the board is filled with uh, rocket science math. That's kind of uh, when you try to explain Bitcoin, we have that same problem. It goes step one is this, step two is that, wallets multi-sig and now we lost everyone that is listening there is that um uh, difficulty of uh, explaining it but i, I like the mike michael's uh, answer which is it, it, people didn't understand electricity when it showed up people didn't still to this day don't understand how computers work but they use them so that's not a a problem for bitcoin itself it's going to be actually an opportunity for a lot of tech developers to build, to not change Bitcoin. So to answer your question is not change Bitcoin, but change how it, it interacts with, with the uh, user. There are, so running my own node and going on uh, Raspberry Pis and, and, and the Raspberry Blitz and, and other OSs and other uh, things, and, and let alone the, uh, the shells and, and all that stuff, it's, it's challenging for a lot of people. And we have a lot of 65-year-olds, a lot of 70-year-olds, even 50-year-olds who do not want to hear you talk about cold storage. They don't want that. Nobody wants, most people don't want cold wallets. Nobody wants, they say, we have a million dollars. We want exposure to Bitcoin. Don't talk to me about cold wallets. Don't talk to me about nodes. Don't talk to me about, you know, lightning. I don't want to hear that <laughs> and understandable and understand that like for example people want to invest for example in, in exxon mobile they don't know anything about oil you know like that's understandable same thing with bitcoin people want to make money out of it or store it for the long haul like me and understandably these people some most of them don't have the time and don't have the will or really the knowledge to understand it and that's fine and that's where I think the next phase for Bitcoin is we have apps like Strike by Mahler's, which is super user friendly. And I think that's that's what people want. I think that user friendliness, Bitcoin core itself and Bitcoin itself unchanged, very little changes, no changes. I, I like actually I love that it doesn't change. That's that's a great thing about it.
It knows what it is. Unlike Ethereum, doesn't know what it is. Bitcoin knows what it is. It knows and it's comfortable with that. The world changes. Bitcoin doesn't change. I love that. However, the apps that are built on layer uh, two, the apps that are the gateways to using the Lightning Network, Lightning Network is decentralized, not owned by anyone, but the apps, your gateway to the network, of course, are owned by different companies and different people. And those are where um, innovation comes and user friendliness. Like it, it, when you give a Lightning Network or a Lightning payment app to you know, your average grandma and she uses it, Easily, that's a success. That's when you have massive adoption, really. It sounds almost like, and not to paraphrase or steal your words, but like what you're really looking for is the development for the UX to be so seamless, almost in the same way that like, like I couldn't tell you the code behind YouTube for those of you who are watching or how we... Uh, how all of that works on the back end necessarily. I just know that at one point during this, my camera shot out and had to unplug and replug it back in. That was the gist of it. But like, that's not the case with Bitcoin. You need to have, I think, a little bit more technical savvy. For the most part, I think there's offerings in America, at least like Strike or Cash App, where it's as simple as the app that you already are familiar with sending money back and forth. But in reality, like, most people don't actually understand the nuances of an app like Venmo and how it's now linked to your bank account and how Venmo gets access to that, pulls it into their own hub of money that they then send off from that pool to the person you're trying to send money of. That's not really understood. It's, hey, I owe you five bucks for whatever, the last round or whatever. I don't know. If you're Venmo, okay. people for five dollars, you're an idiot in my opinion, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> Can I add one thing also? It's, it's not just the regular user. We're, uh, if we want to talk about big hedge fund managers and family offices and uh, wealth funds, sovereign wealth funds and everything, these portfolios and that big money doesn't care also, doesn't care about the, the, the tech. It, does, it doesn't care about uh, a lot of the nuances that we care about. You know what they do? Uh, and I've worked in some portfolio management in the past. What they care about and the way they invest about the price of the asset they don't they, they just say this is this is my uh, portfolio five percent ten percent put five percent ten percent allocation into bitcoin for example they don't say oh buy bitcoin at this price buy ten you know 100 bitcoins at, at this. no they don't do that they do allocations they do five percent ten percent fifteen percent whatever the percentage is allocate that into bitcoin this way you get exposure you get a position that's how they do it. You think they're not going to ask about the tech. Most of them don't. As long as they get a green light or, or the, you know, as long as they see, uh, you know, Chase or, or, or Goldman Sachs getting into it, that's, that's their flag. That's their indicator. That's their green light. As long as the big, you know, big guys in Wall Street are doing it, then that's our light. Let's do it. Allocate 3% into Bitcoin. They're not going to care about tech. That's, that's how it is. Um, there was a question that just popped into my head and now it has escaped me, but, uh, Adam, talk a little bit about just sort of Amwal network, how, uh, how people can maybe learn more about or stay up to date with where you guys are, uh, working on with that. So we started about a year ago. We are, I would, I would like to say pan Middle Eastern. We have myself, 
I'm the CEO and founder. I have Monas, who's a co-host. I have also Mesra, who's a podcast host. We have a podcast as well. We also have Latif from Morocco. Uh, Mesra is from uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Latif is uh, from uh, Morocco. We have Bakr, who's uh, from Algeria. He's the developer. And uh, Zaid is the uh, data uh, developer. So we have, so our three main products is content education. That's via uh, YouTube and also podcast. podcast. Our podcasts are very, very dense with information, economics and everything, stuff that is not friendly on YouTube. We put it, it's fascinating, very information rich. If you like that, if you are in the mood to learn about the US dollar, petrodollar, the history of gold, the history of fractional reserve banking, all that stuff, US crashes, inflation, that's our podcast. Uh, YouTube is where we talk about um, um, some altcoins and we educate on them really to avoid them sometimes and also to invest in them sometimes for trading. I specialize in Lightning Network and economics in general uh, and Bitcoin, of course. Uh, we were so privileged to be invited by uh, Bitcoin Magazine to attend 2022 and we're coming in 23 for sure. And uh, yeah, it's uh, we have our website is umwall.network. And lastly, we have uh, iOS apps and also our Android app. Just look for Umwall Network. You'll find it. And we're building a lightning payment app. Hopefully, uh, will be launched very soon. And it's going to be geared towards the Middle Eastern audience. They're going to be able to not just pay on it, but we want to do something like the Sphinx app, which is uh, chat and send files and do stuff on the Lightning Network. That's another thing that could take us another two hours, which is the Lightning Network is not only for sending money for payment, it's also for you could you could send files, you could chat, you could do a lot of things. It's fascinating. We're only scratching the surface off of it. But our website is amwal.network, and it's where we have most of our links and everything. Uh, I love that. I did now remember what I wanted to ask you. And it was, it roots from, you know, your background as a financial uh, investor and, and uh, advisor. I'm curious, you touched on the very beginning how, you know, you were brought and made aware of Bitcoin, but you were a little bit hesitant. Everyone says no to Bitcoin at the first, their first time. What, what things that you learned in traditional finance did you have to unlearn to really understand Bitcoin? The Fed knows what they're doing. That one we know you had to give up on. <laughs> that, I, uh, uh, that I needed to trust. Well, I didn't to trust the central authority. Um, that the system, uh, what, what we called it uh, mainly in risk management, we called it systemic risk. Uh, everything that is an outsider to the fiat system is a systemic risk. One of them is Bitcoin. Another is uh, the underground, for example, uh, the dark web economy. Uh, anything is a systemic risk to the system. We have also over leveraged uh, MBSs, mortgage backed securities, and we saw in 2008, anything is systemic risk. But I never understood how rotten the system is from the inside. And that really kind of shocked me in a I don't want to say in a traumatic way, but I always, I took it for granted. I never, ever questioned it, that authority in the central bank and the government. I never, never questioned it. Even in school and at Penn State, I never questioned that, you know, that Keynesian um, economics thing. I never questioned that authority, the government, 
and how it plays that um, uh, pulling the, the only thing it does is pull the lever up and down for raising interest rates and lowering interest rates and occasionally steps in to save the markets. That's it. But I had to, I took it for granted. You know how right now we're breathing without really thinking of our muscles and not thinking of the mechanism of breathing. Same thing for me as a traditional finance person. I never thought to question that, questioning authority. Until Bitcoin, I was like, what the hell is, you know, like you could make more of it. Of course, you could just copy it. We could torrent it or something just because I was an idiot. And, and my wife thinks I'm, I still am. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's insane how when I learned about Bitcoin and I understood the peer-to-peer -peer power and I understood the, the incentives and uh, punishment mechanism, the protocols. Andreas Antonopoulos, I'm butchering his last name, I'm sorry. It describes it so eloquently when he talks about the system of rewards and incentives. There is no need. Bitcoin, there is no police officer in the middle dictating everything. There is no third party. It's just you want to participate in this network? Come on over. But if you cheat, you won't get the reward. Of course, that's bad because you have spent capital and money to join the network, especially miners. And that was just, I was like, holy cow, this is game theory one-on-one. And I just couldn't believe it. this is so beautiful. And people who don't understand Bitcoin, again, uh, I, I don't want to turn them off of Bitcoin by, you know, I don't want to rattle them too much, but it takes a while. And I hope they just open their minds to the fact that there is a human nature system in the proof of work mechanism and in Bitcoin, there's human, there's game theory. It's beautiful when you look under the hood. What is the thing that most excites you right now out of the Bitcoin space? And uh, right now, what excites me the most is the, um, I want people to, this is bad to say, I think, but I want people to forget about it. Remember, remember when the news went so crazy in 2017, November and December, 2017, it was insane. Bitcoin was everywhere. And, and it's just FOMO on high gear. And then it went down, it, it had that crash in 2018, and then people forgot about it. And that was beautiful, because that was a great chance to accumulate. And that's the reason I, that's the reason I don't have a day job. It's the reason I have a bunch of properties is because of that opportunity where I accumulated into Bitcoin at the time. And I still do to this day, and that's what I think is beautiful about it is when people forget about it for a little bit, when people forget about it a little bit, there will be an opportunity for us to get in and buy even more. Because when it takes off, you know, when some indicator, some people ask me, what is the indicator? What do you think is going to happen? What I think is going to happen, I think the Fed is going to uh, raise a bit more their interest rates, and then they're going to cause a crash. It's almost inevitable. And then they will have to reverse. They will have to reverse their policy. Uh, and they will blame Putin, number one, in Russia. And number two is they will uh, say, oh, we're doing it for, um, you know, the high unemployment and other reasons. And then when we get the uh, reverse, we will see Bitcoin skyrocket. What is, uh, the, what is the indicator? It's going to be the gold hitting 2000 and uh, Bitcoin getting um, to beat its um, all-time high. And then we will see it decoupling from the NASDAQ. And then once it's over 100,000, you could forget about it. Even if it right. takes six you, months, you a year. unlocked my favorite question, the one that I've been asked too many times that I'd ask. <laughs> what, in your opinion, is 
a causing this uh, correlation and what in your opinion is going to be the catalyst for the decoupling? So the, the, uh, the coupling of the NASDAQ and, and Bitcoin, well, not just the NASDAQ, really, it's a stock market in general, it's because of allocations and uh, portfolio managers, hedge funds and, and, and investors, family offices and so on. Uh, when they build a portfolio, you know, the traditional, the boring, the dumb 60-40 method of 60 stocks, 40 bonds, that's out of the window. So they started adding um, Bitcoin, some exposure to Bitcoin. And that's why. So when they uh, sell off stocks, they will sell off Bitcoin. And when they accumulate stocks, they accumulate Bitcoin as well, because it's in the same portfolio. And that's where the coupling comes from, in my opinion. Decoupling will happen. So if we notice, and I believe... Year to date, since January 1st, NASDAQ is down 22%. I think, I think I'm right, 22%. And Bitcoin is down 14%. So that's good. Decoupling is coming, but it's, it's going to be gradual. When people will see, it, it's just the, the, the system is rotten. And people, the dollars... Smart people, smart money is getting out of dollars. And once that sinks in for so many people, we will see that allocation in portfolios jump from 5% in Bitcoin to 30% Bitcoin and higher. And that's when we get decoupling. It's just, it's gradual. I love, I love that. I was just quickly pulling up and can confirm that as of 11, 16 a.m. Pacific time, uh, the NASDAQ has made newer lows yet again. So we're in for a fun ride, guys. But <laughs> fun fact, Bitcoin is just now broken just above 38,000. So nice. I really want those cheap sats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Carrot, I told, I told my viewers about Carrot uh, last week. I said, download Carrot. You get, you get so many sats. Just do it. And it's, yeah. Yeah, if you're already reading articles, especially articles from Bitcoin Magazine, you might as well just do it through the Carrot app because you'll get five free sats. And yes, I know what five free five sats is equivalent to today right now. But do not forget that one of your great, 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 possibly great, great, great grandchildren will one day have only 37 sats as a reward on the final Bitcoin block. And so these single and double digit sat rewards that you get today that you scoff at will truly be generational wealth one day. But that's just me on my high horse. I'll come back down. Um, <laughs> I'll on something really interesting, Adam, and, and I want to explore it with you for the limited time we have. But you talk a little bit about how, you know, the way fund managers design portfolio allocation is indicative of what we witness in the stock market. If people are being told, hey, we can only allocate two and a half percent, we can only allocate 5% of this portfolio towards Bitcoin and the price fluctuates, you're going to see selling and buying very, very often. So talk, can you just uh, maybe expand on that thought of what that looks like from someone who's like been there and seen these things develop. How does that look on a day-to-day -day basis? How often are these portfolios getting reallocated? Is it on a weekly basis or a daily basis? So with uh, fund management and, and um, people who f manage these big funds, especially with boardrooms and, and, and many stakeholders and investors, it's not like uh, one person, you know, like you and I could throw few thousand dollars, but not a problem and hold it. 
or sell it, whatever you want. It's up to you. You could invest in whatever you want. But in these funds, you're, you, you would be questioned by your board. You would be questioned by your team. You, you, would, you, you are responsible in front of your investors on what to do. For example, especially in publicly traded companies with the uh, actively managed uh, funds, they, they need to sell. The CFO has to sell if it, uh, a, a specific amount of profit. Like, for example, if it makes 15% profit, they have to sell. Equally, if it loses a, a certain amount of uh, percentage, they also have to sell. They have to divest based on a quarterly basis. It's not up to them. The CFO, the CFO of, of any company, CC, Michael Saylor could do it because he's the CEO and he, like there's a, that's a different story. But most public companies and even private companies cannot do that. They have to sell a certain amount of profit. You and I could ride the profit wave. This is awesome. It's, I'm not going to sell it. And we spend years and years and years sitting on our Bitcoin. But companies cannot do that. That's what happens. Funds also have the same problem, especially when you have, uh, you know, individuals who are waiting for a specific amount of profit or divesting or all these things. So it's not up to them. And, and sh the short answer is there are many stakeholders and many decision makers and uh, decisions are slow. And also fear could be high. So whenever you know inflation news comes up and interest rates and buying real estate for example before the fed raises rates again and you you need liquidity and you have a hundred million dollars sitting in stocks and bitcoin you need to liquidate to buy uh more land and more real estate more property so that's why you sell so it's a different ball game i would say it's a different uh, that's why that's it's just many decision makers many stakeholders Awesome. Well, Adam, really appreciate that and uh, our entire conversation. I wanted to give you an opportunity to let everyone in the audience sort of know where they can learn more about you, stay up to date with all the projects at Amwell, uh, maybe what your Twitter and all that jazz is. Thank you. Appreciate you. And thanks, Chris. Uh, and tell Alex, so a funny story, you didn't mention that. When Alex walked into uh, the, the uh, hall, I thought he was uh, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase. Oh no, we know that story. We we uh we have not let that joke die. So thank you. You're not the only one to say that too. So really? many people, so many people thought he's Brian Armstrong. Like Brian, can we get an interview? He's like, I'm not Brian. But oh my God, I thought I thought it was only me. Oh man, we need to okay. get off their computers and go outside more. Like seriously, guys. <laughs> so thank you so much. Appreciate. Uh, I really appreciate the privilege and the opportunity. My um. So our. Website is amwal.network. That's it, amwal.network. YouTube is just amwal, which means money in Arabic. Twitter is amwal network, just one word, amwal network. And that's where you find most, of, so just Google amwal network. You'll find uh, hopefully a lot of information. Uh, we do, we educate on uh, Bitcoin and we um, uh, do data, provide data and also lightning network solutions. That's what we do. That's our new venture is uh, lightning network solutions, apps and nodes, building apps and nodes. So thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Awesome, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today.